Um, so this last week and this week, uh, we're doing this this little sermon series that tackling I think one of the one, one of the biggest problems that that we're all kind of wrestling with uh, these days, and that problem is that I'm right and you're wrong. Now, of course, that's not a problem to me because I'm right. <laughs> but, but all y'all got to get on my level. <laughs> and the problem is, is that actually that, that, that you think the same thing, that you think that I'm right and you're wrong. And like, it's, How do we deal with our disagreements? How do we deal with, with divisions, with conflict when we have different convictions arising over different things? How do we navigate that? So last week we were in Romans 14, um, and I actually I have to make a correction of something I said last week because last week one of the things we were talking about is the difference between like an opinion and a conviction that you know we we disagree on things that you know that don't really matter but then there's convictions we have that have like a moral dimension, and I I use the example of pizza being just you know that's an opinion I love pizza and if you don't that that's okay, um, that's not really a conviction with a moral dimension. Um, well, Wes Harris came up to me after, after the service, and, uh, and, and he informed me that, um, that he doesn't like pizza, <laughs> uh, but that he actually gets in trouble about that at his, at, at his house, that, that it ca- like causes problems, or whatever. Um, and so that it turns out for, for them it is a conviction thing. <laughs> um, and I like that because that gives me, I feel like that gives me freedom now to elevate my preference to the level of a command. And, um, and if you don't love pizza, just re- repent. Uh, <laughs> well, so, so yeah, we were in Romans 14 uh, last, last week and seeing how Paul laid out these kind of two categories of, of conscience. He called the weak and the strong. Um, the, the, the weak being those with a, with a more restrictive conscience, that take God's commands and like, I, I, I need some rules here. And, and then the strong, he said, being, being those who are a, a little more liberated, more, a little more of an expansive conscience and saying, taking God's command and, and their convictions, navigating that a little differently. And Paul saying how these two disagree with one another, how they, how they walk this out in love is what Romans 14 was about, and so you know. So he'd said, um, you know, the, the one who's weak in faith says, "Welcome him. Don't don't quarrel over these these convictions." He said to the strong, the, the strong one. He says, he says, "Yes, you're free in Christ, but but love always trumps freedom. That love for your brother or sister uh, always causes you to lay down your rights and your preference for the other person." Uh, and so now we we arrive in Romans 15. And Romans 15, really, this is, Paul is just continuing the this, this same, this same train of thought. Sometimes, sometimes we get tripped up when the Bible has like chapters, like it's broken up. It's, it's the same thing. In the end of Romans 14, Paul was addressing the strong about laying down your rights and your preferences and love for the other person. And he just keeps going here in Romans 15, verse 1. So you can open up a Bible to Romans, or we're going to put it up on the screen here. And here's what the, the Apostle Paul says. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. 
For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is God's word to us. So in verse 1, Paul says, he says, we, have, we who are strong, so he's, he's talking, because remember we saw last week, he's in that kind of the, the camp of saying, saying the gospel has liberated, has liberated these categories, and so, so now God's commands are aimed at my heart, and so Paul, so, so Paul has, been, has been laying out why, uh, why he's in that strong camp, so he's, he's talking to kind of his, his camp now, he's like, okay guys, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, it's a, a little note here. The word failings there, says the failings of the weak, that doesn't mean moral failings like sin. He's, Paul, in fact, Paul was really clear in chapter 14. Both of these camps, the weak and the strong, he says they're both trying to honor God in, according to their conscience. They're both honoring God. So, so the person who feels more restrictive, Paul's not saying that sin, you failure, you know, shape up. Uh, rather, that word failings, um, really it means inadequacy or insufficiency, that, that the weak lack something. They do, they're, they're not in sin, they're, they're honoring God, but they do lack something in the category of grace and how, how the gospel applies to their lives. And he says that they're missing something here. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to, to bear with them in that lack. And this word obligation, kind of t- the message today really, in a lot of ways, is going to kind of hang on, on this word. That the word obligation there in the Greek, it literally means um, to have debt, to, to be indebted. It's, it's a legal term, actually. It's a, it, 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 what that word means is a legal obligation to, to pay a debt. It, kind of in the same way, like if you pay something with a credit card, and you know how you have to like sign it afterwards, and a lot of times we don't, you know, not really paying attention to what we're signing, but you know, right under where it signs, what you're signing is you're saying, I agree to pay the X amount dollars. And so you're, you're signing that, so the credit card company has that. You now have a legal obligation to, to pay for that, that latte that you bought. Or, you know, like a bank, bank loans you $100,000 to buy a house, and you sign all over the place, sign on the dotted line a hundred times, they, they give you a house. Um, but you now have a legal obligation to pay it back. You're in debt to the bank. That's what this word is. This word says, says that we who are strong are in debt to bear with the failings of the weak. Uh, Paul uses the same word just a little earlier at the end of Romans 13 when he says, he says, owe no one anything. And there he, he, he actually is talking about like actual like physical like money debts. He says, don't get into debt except to love each other. We're, we're going to come back to that. But it's the same word there in 13.8 when he says, owe no one anything. So here, here it's translated obligation, but it's the same word. It's we who are strong are in debt to bear with the weak. So what I want to know is, 
in what way? Like, in, in what way, like, if, if, I, if I'm that, this, the strong conscience feeling liberated, free in Christ, in what way am I in, in debt to this weaker brother? Because you know, th- think about this. So if I, you know, if I, I have a conscience liberated by the gospel, I'm free in Christ to enjoy the freedom, you know, like to you know, have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever. That's one of the examples we talked about last week. Like, you might think, what does that even have to do with the other person, right? And a, a lot of times when, when our convictions are bumping up against each other and we're disagreeing, a lot of times we think that, right? Like, like this, this conviction I have, this thing I'm doing, like what does it even have to do with you, chill person? And that's how we, that's how we think, um, especially in our hyper-individualistic American culture. We're all about my freedom and my rights. And, and so, so like, what does my freedom even have to do with another person? But here we have something I think really fundamental to learn about how God's grace works. This, this free grace that we were singing about, that, that this free grace in Jesus that, that forgives our sin, that rescues us, resurrects us, we get something really important to learn here about how God's grace works. And it's this. This is kind of the, the, the big idea, if you will, for the message. That Here it is, that grace pays our debt to God and puts us in debt to people. Grace pays our debt to God and puts us in debt to other people. See, here, here's, how this, here's how this works. Um, Jesus told a story about this, actually. You know, Jesus in the Gospels tells lots of parables, lots of stories, little pictures of what his kingdom is like. You might know this story from Matthew 18 about a king and a debtor. And Jesus tells this story to illustrate what forgiveness is like, what it's all about. And so Jesus told this story that the king calls his servants to settle debts um, because the king has loaned this particular servant just an astronomical amount of money, 10,000 talents, which, which in modern sums is billions of dollars. This servant is billions of dollars in debt, can't possibly pay it back, and yet, and yet the loan is due. And so, of course, the servant can't pay. And Jesus simply says, he says, out of pity for him, the master of that servant, the king, released him and forgave him the debt. That's that's a picture in Jesus' story there of grace paying my debt to God. In that story, the debt that the servant owes the king is like my sin. That My sin, the ways that I have rebelled against God, the way my costly lifetime of living for myself, breaking his commands, ignoring his will, that my sin has put me in debt to God. And this is a debt that I cannot possibly pay. It will take eternity to pay this debt. And every moment, so every moment of my, of my life is just accumulating debt before God of failing to live up to his standards. And every moment of forbearance on that loan, when I'm not struck down to go stand before the king and pay what I owe, every moment of forbearance when I don't have to do that is just compounding interest on that loan. 
And so just like the servant in the story, there's nothing that I can do to save myself. I, I cannot pay this debt. I can't, I can't clean up my act and do better as if that could somehow erase the debt. There is no, there is no payment plan that can get me right with God. I'm, I'm going to come to church every Sunday, and that will get me right with God. It will not. It, it will not. There is no payment plan that can erase the debt you have before God. My only hope is just like the servant in the story, my only hope is for the king to have mercy on me. And he does. He does. That, that's what happens in Jesus' story. I'm the servant with the debt. And the king releases me. He, he, the king writes off the loan. The king takes the financial hit. And I go free. That is the best news in the world for debtors like you and me. That the grace of God pays my debts. The grace of God has made a way for me to be forgiven. And this way is free to you and me. And it comes at an extraordinarily high cost to the king. The book of Colossians says that my sin my sin with its legal demands of death and hell and payment, that it was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. What we were singing about earlier, thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. What that means is there was a payment that was due. Life, a life needed to be offered. The wages of sin is death. And yet look at the king who stands in my place, writes his name on my bill, and pays the wages himself. Pays for the wages of my sin. And they're paid in full, and I go free. And my debt to God is paid. And th this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what we're, this is what we're about, what, what we celebrate, what we sing about. This good news that grace pays our debt to God. but you might remember what comes next in that story. Jesus, the Jesus story isn't done. That servant, Jesus goes on to say, is released from his billion-dollar debt, and he goes out of the palace, and he finds a fellow servant who owes him a couple hundred bucks, maybe a couple thousand, whatever, and he demands payment, starts choking him, say, pay what you owe me. And the king hears and calls back the servant, and the, and the king says to that servant, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Let's think about that for a second. This can have everything to do with Romans 15, because that wasn't on the terms of that debt forgiveness. As far as we know, the king didn't say anything about, you know, okay, now make sure you read the fine print before you click accept here, servant, because now you have to go out and do, do this too. That wasn't on the terms of the agreement. This, that wasn't the payment, a payment plan that, that the servant somehow agreed to. If, okay, I know if I go and be a forgiving person, then I'll, then I'll get forgiven. There is no payment plan that works. The king forgave his debt, no strings attached. His debt to the king was paid by the king. 
And so he doesn't owe the king anymore. But we find in the story that now he owes his fellow servant something. And what he owes his fellow servant is that same mercy. Grace pays my debt to God and puts me in debt to other people. The unfairness of grace, if you could use that, that word, the unfairness of grace creates an obligation. Because grace is unfairness. Uh, it's just unfairness in my favor. Because, see, what would be fair is, is I pay my debt. Right? That's, that's fair. That's, that's just. I racked up the debt. I pay it. But grace is unfairness in my favor. And being a recipient of that unfairness now puts an obligation on me to extend that unfairness to others. I don't owe God anymore, but I do owe you. That, that's why Colossians 3 here on the screen, it says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, must. It's an obligation now. God has forgiven you. He has paid your debts. Now you are in debt to others, obliged to extend that forgiveness. Grace pays our debts with God and puts us in debt to people. Or that Romans 13 verse again says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. It's interesting. Paul views love as a debt. It's a kind of debt. Because it's the same thing as Colossians. It's the same thing as Jesus' story. It's, it's I have been loved by God undeservingly. And now I'm in debt to love you like that. Love is a debt. Just like forgiveness is a debt I owe you. If I've been forgiven by God, I owe you forgiveness. I have been loved by God. I owe you love. And in Romans 1, this, there's actually a lot of this in, in Romans. Romans 1, this, this one's interesting. This is the, begin, the very beginning of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He's telling them how he wants to, to come and share the gospel. He wants to preach. He wants to tell them this good news. And the way he expresses it is he says, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. I'm in debt to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, all kinds of people, every kind of people. He says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to, to you, you in Rome. says, I, I'm in debt now. I, I owe you the gospel. And of course he does. It's the, same we, it's the same pattern we've seen. The gospel came to him. The good news about Jesus landed on him when he wasn't looking for it. And so now he owes that gospel to everybody else. Grace pays our debts to God and puts us in debt to people. And now back to Romans 15. And that's exactly what's happening here. It says, we who are strong have an obligation, are in debt, to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Why am I in debt? Because God has borne patiently with me. God has been patient with my failings with my inadequacies, with my limited grasp of his grace. And so Paul says, you strong? God 
has borne patiently with your inadequacy. It's been patient with your lack of understanding. Isn't that so true? Like sometimes we can really have this chip on our shoulder of pride of being like, why aren't people on my level? Well, you weren't on your level a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago. Why would you expect everyone else to be there? And in the meantime, God has been patient with you. So he says, God has been patient with your lack of understanding. Now you're in debt to bear patiently with those who don't quite get it either. And keep reading, and you'll, you'll see how Paul unpacks this gospel logic. It's, it's all, he actually he takes the time here to unpack this. He says, We who are strong have this debt to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. So he says, So here's the command let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For, because Christ, he says, Look at Jesus. He did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That we're in debt to please our neighbor, to not look out for our own interests first, but to put others' interests first, because that's what Jesus did. That's what he did for me. Christ laid aside his privileges, his rights, and Christ became a servant all the way to the point of death. And Paul quotes Psalm 69 here when he says, as it is written in the quotation marks, he's quoting Psalm 69 from the Old Testament um, that speaks, it's this messianic psalm that speaks about God's chosen king. That this king who, he is the only one who deserves everything. Like if anybody has rights, it's him. And yet this king in Psalm 69 sides with his people. And this king says, your reproach, your shame, that's what that word means, your shame will be my shame. The shame heaped on you, Jesus says, let it fall on me. Grace. Jesus lays aside his privilege to meet me in my shame and my inadequacy, to lift me up. And Paul says, that's why you're in debt to go do the same. In, in verse, verse 4, and you keep reading, Paul elaborates just, just a little bit on, on his use of that Old Testament quote. Sometimes Paul doesn't always explain how he's using an Old Testament quote. Here he does. He says, for whatever was written in the former days, talking about you know, that Old Testament quote, everything in the Old Testament, he says, was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I think, I think what he's saying here is he's, there's a couple things he's touching on here in his use of that Old Testament quote. Because he's, he's, remember, the specific issue that he's been addressing in this chapter with the weak and the strong is how their convictions apply to Old Testament law. And so I think he's, one of the things he's saying here, uh, again, is to the weak who have all of these rules and make more rules, he says, you're not quite getting it. Because that Old Testament... It wasn't about rules. That, that, that's what they thought. and maybe, maybe you've thought that too. Old Testament, all the Ten Commandments and all those rules. But he says the instruction of the Old Testament, the, what the Old Testament is trying to teach us, isn't rules, but it's grace. It's, it's Jesus. He's, he's quoting and saying, look, it's Jesus doing this for us. 
And so there is hope here, and there is encouragement here. It's all pointing to Jesus. And so the moral of the Old Testament is not rules, but look at the God who rescues his people. And so in verses 5 and 7, now Paul brings brings all of this to a close. It kind of comes in for a landing with this, this flow of thought that started at the beginning of chapter 14. He brings this whole long thought to a close with this, this beautiful benediction, this exhortation, and this picture of what it's supposed to look like when what he's been describing happens, when weak and strong are united by grace, debtors to one another, He says this, he says, May that God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Back at the beginning of this summer, we, we, we saw this, this text, and I'm going to just use the same illustration here because it, it works. He says, live in harmony with one another. It's a, it's a musical term. And you know, the difference between harmony and melody, this is where I, I, I don't, I'm not a music theorist, so I'm not going to really be able to, to say this correctly. So music people, come and correct me afterwards. Um, but you saw when the worship team was up here and, and, and the, the ladies were singing here, if you paid attention carefully, they weren't actually all singing the same notes. Did you notice that? Um, that, that one here was, was singing kind of the melody that, that we're all joining with, but then someone over here is kind of going like high and someone here is going low. And, uh, and if you had isolated it out and like just played this one, you probably would have gotten confused. You're like, wait, that's not how the song goes. Well, but it is. They're all, they're all singing different parts. But somehow these notes and these notes again, I'm not a music theorist, somehow come, come together. I don't know, somehow come together to make something more beautiful than what if it was just everyone up here singing the same note. I don't know how it works, but it works. And that's the picture here, that, that this, this goal that we're aiming for is weak and strong and, and all of our differences, like look around, like we got a lot of differences here. A lot of different convictions, a lot of different preferences. We've got weak and strong and everyone in between. We've got, we got rule keepers and we've got freedom fighters. We've got seasoned saints. We've got brand new believers. And this, so this will either be, in this room, just a cacophony of outrage and division. Everyone's singing their own song. Or there can be harmony where these different notes blend together somehow to create one voice. And with one voice, he says, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does that happen? It's here in the phrase, in accord with Christ Jesus saying you in your song and you in your song match your key to Jesus. Weak 
and strong, different convictions. Have those different convictions, but hold those convictions in accord, in, in, in line with Jesus. And so he says, look at Jesus. So if you want to say, how, how am I supposed to, to hold this particular conviction? Really, whether it's the strong or the weak of, of saying, I, I believe I can do this, and the person over here is saying, no, I think I should do this. How are you to hold that conviction? You're to say, what does, what does Jesus look like here? What does Jesus sound like here? What does Jesus act like here? What does grace and humility and love and servanthood look like here? And so I'm going to match my conviction to that, to, to that tune. And if I do that here with my conviction and you do that here with your conviction, we'll still have our different convictions, but the way that we hold them, the voice being heard will be Jesus. And God will be glorified. And so the, we, have, we have two options in our differences. We can stick with our convictions and our rights and our freedom. And in doing so, we will drown out the gospel. Or we can be in debt to one another. Aware of the grace that has paid our debts to God, aware of Jesus' heart, and how that grace has knocked us off of our high and mighty pedestals, has put us in debt with one another. And that will glorify God. That will make Jesus look great. In a, in a world of outrage, and cacophony, that's different. And so in verse 7, he says as conclusion, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. The, the word welcome here, it, it means more than just a handshake or a hello. Uh, it, it literally means to hold to oneself. It means embrace embrace one another as Christ has embraced you. Child of God, he has embraced you. Do you can, can, can you really believe that? Can, can you hold on to that in your soul that, that Jesus is not ashamed of you? He's not rolling his eyes at you, tapping his foot with impatience at you, waiting for you to get your act together. He embraces you. And that hug of grace now puts you in debt to go do that to others. It's, it, it really is that simple. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then that last phrase, for the glory of God. If I could have the, the worship team, the worship team come up. This church, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is our worship. This is the true worship that God wants from his people. Not just words, not just the songs we sing, 
but this heart. You know, back in Romans 12, when Paul began this whole section, uh, he said, in view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. He says, that's your true worship. What does it mean to be a living sacrifice in view of God's mercy? It doesn't mean you have to pay God back, bring your sacrifices, offer to God, measure up. That's not what that means. It means you are a sacrifice now, but you're aimed outward at other people. You're laying down your life for others. You're laying down your rights for others. You're laying down your privileges and your preferences for others. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's the worship God is after. Welcome one another for the glory of God. So I, we're going to sing, to close here, we're going to sing a, a song. It's an oldie but a goodie. It's uh, the, the heart of worship. If you're one of those church people around like in the 90s, you know this song. Uh, it's, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. I'd like to give a new twist on that. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. Because Jesus, it is all about this grace, your grace. And worship, the heart of worship is I am now in debt to the people around me. And so as the song says, I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. He doesn't want our words. He wants us welcoming one another. He doesn't want our songs. He wants living sacrifices, laying down our lives and our rights. And, and the line in the song, here, here, I, I'd like us to ponder this as we sing. You can, you can stand, and I'd like us to think about this line as we sing. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made worship to be. Here's the question that I think God wants us to wrestle with. Where have you not done this? Where have you thought for a moment that worship could just be the songs you sing? And so sing the songs on Sunday and then post angry stuff on Facebook on Monday? Or where do you harbor resentment and bitterness? Who in this room are you unwilling to embrace as Christ has embraced you? I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When I've made it about me. Lord, would you rest on us as we, as we sing this song, as we, as we confess Lord, that so often that this heartbeat of worship, of welcoming as we have been welcomed, has been far from our lips and farther from our hearts. And yet, Jesus, you are here embracing us still. And your grace is still pursuing us and still paying our debts. So, Lord, we want to come back to this heart, to your heart. 
and we confess and declare, Lord, it is all about you. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.